This is a Reconstructionist Radio production. Please visit ChristendomRestored.com to read other articles. This article is titled, Special Grace, Common Grace, and was written by Bojar Marinov on May 31, 2012. The postmillennialist sees the decay of culture around him and is deeply disturbed, but feels it can and will ultimately turn around for the better. I found these words in an internet forum. I understand why they were said. I can see the motivation behind them. The author of these words is a postmillennialist, and he believes in the ultimate victory of the kingdom of God in history and on earth. That is, he believes in Christendom, and that the cultures on the earth will eventually submit universally to Christianity and to its comprehensive demands for both individuals and societies. As far as our beliefs about the purpose of history are concerned, he and I are on the same side. He wants to restore Christendom as much as I do. But his statement about the decay of culture around us is unfortunately wrong. I say unfortunately not because I want to see decay of culture and am disappointed that there is none. To the contrary, I rejoice in the fact that in our day we are not experiencing a decay of culture. I say unfortunately because his correct eschatology is in conflict with his theology and his social theory and specifically with his view of culture and his definition of decay and growth. And this is because of his lack of understanding of a deeper theological issue that has seldom been discussed in Christian circles and remains largely an obscure issue to most Christian pastors and laymen. I say theological issue, but like every other theological issue, it has serious implications to culture, to social theory, and to our understanding of history. The problem is that theologians who have tackled this issue have largely refused to bring it to bear on problems outside of the realm of pure theology. In fact, I have the suspicion that it has remained obscure simply because few people see why it is relevant to our practice and beliefs today. The issue I am talking about is special grace versus common grace, and the implications of this issue to our interpretation of history, of society, and of modern culture. Quite a few of us are familiar with the idea of special grace. After all, that's what all the sermons in our more conservative churches are all about, the special grace of God to his elect. However, not so many are aware of the concept of common grace, at least not of the term. The practical effects of common grace are familiar to many, especially when during prayer the church thanks God for the liberty of worship we have in this country and for the prosperity God has given America. Thus, while many do not know about common grace and seldom think about its implications, the consequences of it are so conspicuous in our society that American Christians are forced to at least acknowledge it in their prayers, if not in their theology. A similar situation is the postmillennial hymns in all the hymn books in amillennial and premillennial churches. In general, though, there is a misunderstanding about common grace and its function and nature and there is a misunderstanding about the relationship between special grace and common grace. And there is a misunderstanding about the cultural implications of special grace and common grace. And consequently, there is a misunderstanding about the growth of the kingdom of God in history. And the above comment, I believe, about the decay of culture is an example of this misunderstanding. This article will try to explain the problem and its solutions. I rely heavily on Gary North's Dominion and Common Grace, The Biblical Basis of Progress. The other book that is helpful in understanding my position is R.J. Rushdoony, The Biblical Philosophy of History. 
For other reading on the subject, readers can follow the bibliographies in these two books. Special Grace The Bible, obviously, is a book about the special grace of God to His elect. After the fall, the first thing God promises is that He will send a Redeemer for fallen mankind. Genesis 3.15 The rest of the Bible is the development of that promise in the covenant line that goes from Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Solomon, to Christ, who is the special grace himself, the Lamb sacrificed for our sins, so that we are free from the original curse upon Adam and his posterity. Special grace is Christ's death on the cross for the sins of mankind and for the salvation of all who believe. John 3.16 We call it special grace because it is limited to those who are the elect. It is not given to all. While it is open to all to accept, the very acceptance of it requires the special working of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of His elect. Of course, a sinful human heart will never even want to look up to God, let alone accept His offer. So even in our repentance and turning to God, we are still led by special grace from beginning to end. The unelect are not led by special grace, and therefore they refuse to participate in it. But this picture, while accurate in itself, is not complete. Unfortunately, many modern theologians and even Reformed theologians limit special grace to faith and individual salvation, excluding from it other issues like law, ethics, dominion, history, society, victory, even evangelism. The gospel is very simple, one such theologian claims. It is the good news of our salvation through the blood of Christ on the cross. Such a statement is very limited in its understanding of the comprehensive nature of the gospel and therefore of the special grace God has to his people. It misses the fact that even the salvation verses in John 3.16-17 have individual salvation only as a means to a higher goal. For God so loved the world, so that the world might be saved through him. Jesus himself never called his gospel the gospel of salvation, but the gospel of the kingdom, indicating that the gospel is much broader and more comprehensive in its meaning and application. Paul, when explaining to his readers what the gospel is, starts with Christ's death for our sins, but continues all the way to, all things are subjected to him, and then, so that God may be all in all. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-28 What is often omitted from the modern theology of special grace is that special grace includes special revelation, and that special revelation is not only about the death of Christ on the cross, but also about all the consequences of that death in history and in eternity. The bare fact that Christ died for our sins cannot be the gospel itself because this fact is meaningless when separated from our state in eternity. That we are going to be resurrected and have eternal life. 1 Corinthians 12.14 In the same way, the bare fact that Christ died for our sins cannot be the gospel itself because that fact is meaningless when separated from our state in history. In history, we are supposed to do certain things as part of our salvation, that is, as part of the special grace given to us. God's special revelation gives an ethical system that we need to adopt as part of our lives of faith in Christ. James 2.14 Thus, part of that special grace is the revealed law of God, which tells the saved how they shall live as saved persons. And that revealed law of God is not limited. It is comprehensive in its demands and in its scope. Nothing falls out of it. 
For something to fall out of it will mean that the salvation given to us by God is limited to certain areas, but other areas are closed to it. It will mean that God's special grace is limited in its work, much more limited than sin which has permeated every area of life. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. It becomes an empty delusion if God's blessings cannot flow as far as sin does. To summarize in one sentence, special grace includes special revelation. This special revelation gives God's instruction for living in every area of life. Special revelation cannot be separated from special grace, for then special grace will be faith without works, a bare faith, which is not faith at all. But if God's law is the special revelation that comes with special grace, then building a Christian civilization based on that law is part of God's salvation and of God's special grace. It is part of the kingdom. Indeed, Jesus called his gospel the gospel of the kingdom, and he proclaimed the law of God an integral part of his message of salvation. Matthew 5, 17-20 Paul also said that the enforcement of the law for crimes was according to the glorious gospel. 1 Timothy 1, 8-11 God's law was a means of evangelism in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 4, 5-8 and the Great Commission continues the same principle by maintaining that the nations must be taught everything Christ has commanded. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen through 20 David specifically connected God's salvation with obedience to God and teaching others to obedience to God. Psalm 51, 12 through 13, 119, verse 166 and 174. Special grace comes with special revelation. This special revelation is the law of God, and the law of God commands us to build a civilization that is entirely based on the principles of the word of God. Therefore, Christendom, the Christian civilization, is just as part of God's special grace as is individual salvation. Saved people act as saved in everything they do, and this means they build a Christian culture. There is no other way. Therefore, the European Christendom was part of that special grace, not perfect, of course, and still needing centuries to grow in epistemological self-consciousness, maturity, and knowledge of the Lord. But it was part of the special grace nevertheless. Just like Israel in the Old Testament based on God's special revelation, the same special revelation New Testament Christianity is based on. 1 Timothy 3.15-17 The gospel of Christ's kingdom is much more than what is preached today from the pulpits, it is comprehensive, and its special grace includes every special blessing that God gives to his elect, from individual salvation to God's law for building a Christian civilization. Common Grace But what about common grace? Does God give grace to the sinners as well? The modern truncated version of the gospel refuses to accept that the word salvation in the Bible applies to much more than just getting to heaven. Thus, common grace is seldom spoken about, and most theologians don't even have such a concept in their vocabulary. But the Bible has a much broader view of God's salvation. For it is for this we labor and strive, because we have fixed our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. 1 Timothy 4.10 It should be obvious why this verse requires that we expand our definition of salvation. There is no way that we call God a Savior of all men, which will include the unbelievers, if salvation is only getting to heaven. The verse agrees with other verses which call God the Savior of the world, John 3, 16-17, 4, 42, and others.
Unless we want to fall into the heresy of universalism, all men are saved irrespective of their faith, our definition of salvation must be broadened, not to make unsaved people saved, but to include in salvation something of God's work in history and on earth. God gives undeserved gifts to people, Isaiah 42.5, and those gifts are not the same as the gift of eternal salvation, nor the same as the gift of special favor and special revelation. God gives grace to all people, and this grace is called common grace. It is a gift which the unregenerate people receive, even if by the law God should send them directly to hell before they even receive their breathing, given the fact that all men are condemned in Adam. Human beings live, eat, breathe, love, work, make profit, have emotions, have property, experience aesthetic pleasures, do good works, etc., only because of God's common grace to them. Men are not entitled to anything they have. It is all a gift from God. Now to make sure there is no misunderstanding, while the special grace of God is a sign of his favor to his elect, his common grace is not a grace given because of his favor. To the contrary, God's common grace is given to unbelievers only for the purpose of condemning them even more in their rebellion. Similarly to the commandment in Proverbs 25:21-22 to give food and water to your enemy, this will be like burning coals on his head, God gives grace to the unbelievers for the same purpose. The Canaanites were given several extra generations of peaceful existence in the land, not because God had any favor to them, but only to allow them to fill their iniquity. Genesis 15:16. God gives the unregenerate enough rope to hang themselves. But there is more. We saw above that special grace is not limited to individual salvation. That part of special grace is also special revelation, the law of God by which the regenerate are expected to live and build societies and cultures. In the same way, common grace is not limited to a person's breathing and living and enjoying life. It includes implications for the civilization, just as special grace does. Special grace can build a civilization which is specifically based on God's special revelation. Common grace can build and preserve a civilization, for a while, based on God's restraining hand. God restrains unbelievers in their sin not letting them go to the logical end of their rebellion against him. When fallen man is left to follow the dictates of his fallen heart, he and his society gradually lose all self-control and completely give themselves over to immorality, debauchery, laziness, passiveness, ignorance. Indeed, there are societies and people like that today. Modern anthropologists and sociologists call them primitive, but in reality there is nothing primitive about them. To the contrary, these societies have developed their religious commitment against God to its logical end. But we also know that there are non-Christian societies today that have been in the past and will be in the future, who build civilizations with all their good characteristics, law, order, industry, agriculture, commerce, technology, art, literature, construction, roads, protection of property, families, etc., for a society to be able to develop these characteristics of civilization, men in that society must be able to suppress the murderous instincts of their sinful hearts and cooperate with other people. This means they need to suppress their selfishness and serve others. But the sinful heart of man cannot produce willingness to such self-restraint. It is only the restraining hand of God which is responsible for the rise of great civilizations in history. God gives common grace to cultures by making it impossible for the unregenerate to go to the logical end of their rebellion against him, and thus they are able to do some good. 
Special grace builds a Christian civilization. Common grace also builds civilizations that are better than the barbarism of the unrestrained human heart. Crumbs under the table. Gary North has explained in his Dominion and Common Grace the way common grace works and its relation to special grace. He explained Van Til's view of common grace and then Meredith Klein's view of common grace, and he explained the view of common grace that is consistent with the Bible. I'm not going to go over all his arguments. For my argument, here it is sufficient to take one important point from his book. Because of the confusion associated with the term common grace, let me offer James Jordan's description of it. Common grace is the equivalent of the crumbs that fall from the master's table that the dogs eat. This is how the Canaanite woman described her request of healing by Jesus, and Jesus healed her daughter because of her understanding faith. See Matthew 15:27-28. The prime loaf, however, is reserved for those who respond in faith to the gospel and who then persevere in this faith to the end of their earthly lives. Matthew 13:8 and 23. James Jordan said this in an article titled The Meaning of the Noahic Covenant. He also said that the only grace that unbelievers receive after the flood is the spillover from redemptive grace. I would argue that this was the case before the flood as well, and I don't think Jordan would object too hard to that. Jordan's insight about the nature of common grace and its relation to special grace was unique, and it should have been picked up by many theonomists as their foundation for their social theory. I'm not aware of anyone else except Gary North who did. As I will show later, this statement about the decay of culture mentioned above comes from a lack of understanding about that connection between common grace and special grace. If the person who wrote the statement would agree with Jordan as I do, and as Gary North does, he would have come to the same conclusion as Jordan does in his article, which is, What this means for believers is rather frightening, but is also very important. It means that at all times it is believers who rule the world. If we don't like how things are going, we have no one to blame but ourselves. What's important to understand is that there is an inseparable connection between common grace and special grace. Modern theologians, those who talk about common grace at all, believe common grace to be entirely separated and independent from special grace. Van Til believed that common grace is the earlier grace that it existed before there was any special grace at all. Meredith Klein, in a famous statement quoted many times by different commentators, declared that the common grace order must run its course in a manner largely unpredictable. Common grace does not depend on special grace. The existence of special grace in a society, that is, of community of Christians who actively preach and teach the word of God, does not affect the common grace order in that society nor does it affect the overall law, order, civilization, etc. Special grace in the society is something of an addendum to the larger order of common grace, but it has only a marginal influence on it, at best. We have saved people who simply participate in the common culture. That's what our modern Christian life is. This is the view of all modern amillennialists and premillennialists, of the two kingdoms theology, of the non-theonomic teachers in the seminaries, and of the majority of the pastors in Reformed and non-Reformed churches. It is a dualistic view, which in effect destroys the meaning of history by placing it outside of the scope and the workings of special grace. Special grace itself is made irrelevant to history. It has a mantra that it repeats to justify its position. Christians are not from this world, but we have to live in this world. Living righteously in this world is something extraneous to our Christian experience and walk in life, it is forced on us by the circumstances. It is not the very essence of our walk with God and obedience to God, 
The whole creation does not expect the special grace revealed so that it can be freed from its bondage to corruption. Roman 8.21 The world is not going to be saved through our salvation. John 3.16-17 The common grace order is forever separate from the special grace order, and any point of contact is something we need to endure for a while, and that's it. But neither the Bible nor history knows anything about common grace which exists separately from special grace. Common grace, as James Jordan points out, is always a spillover from special grace, crumbs under the table. From the very beginning, God allowed sinful humans to live only because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross, promised in his verdict against the serpent in the garden. Genesis 3.15 The order of common grace before the flood was dependent entirely on the residual special knowledge of God the people before the flood had. Of course, God is not obligated to keep common grace forever, no matter how much special grace he gives to a culture, hence the end of all common grace in the destruction of the flood. After the flood, all common grace came as the result of the Noahic covenant. Sodom and Gomorrah were denied common grace because there was no special grace that would spill over. Genesis 18.16-33 The nations around Israel were supposed to learn justice and righteous through the special revelation of the law of God to Moses. Deuteronomy 4, 5-8. As I pointed to in previous articles, Solomon's popularity in the world led to increased enlightenment and civilization and influence in the barbaric societies of the world. Prior to 900 BC, all the heathen societies were steadily losing all common grace and were falling into anarchy, chaos, barbarism, and savagery. Nineveh needed the preaching of Jonah and repentance to God to be able to rise as a world empire. Babylon survived only insofar as it gave honor to the God of Daniel. In the history after the resurrection, we see the gradual improvement of the conditions of the world, even in the non-Christian world, as the result of the worldwide preaching of the gospel. Common grace is something taken for granted in many places today, especially in the U.S., and seldom do preachers, theologians, or ordinary church members stop to consider that the increased common grace is nothing else but the result of the increased special grace. The more people become Christians, the more the Bible and its law are translated, read, taught, preached, the more even the pagans in our modern world are becoming more sober, more industrious, more law-abiding, more future-oriented. They want the economic fruits of a Christian civilization, even if they resent its religious roots. Ever wondered why so many want to immigrate to Europe or the U.S.? Such increase in common grace is not independent from the spreading of the gospel. It is, as I mentioned above, crumbs from the table of special grace. Many non-Christian scholars make the mistake of attributing that increase of common grace, living conditions, economic conditions, safety, technologies, to some material or evolutionary factors. Historians like Deidre McCloskey and Neil Ferguson reject the idea that capitalism is produced by the Protestant ethic, as Max Weber claimed in his book, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. Capitalism is emerging even in nations that never had any Christianity. To start with, like China and India and Africa is their position, Therefore, capitalism and the resulting economic growth is not necessarily produced by any Christian endeavor. Such position, again, misses the fact that India and Africa and China did not produce the foundation for that capitalism and economic growth within themselves, but they learned it from the Christian West. Far from proving that capitalism is a religiously neutral product, these examples actually prove Jordan's thesis that common grace is only a spillover from redemptive grace, crumbs under the table of God's special grace to his people. Common grace is never alone, and never independent. 
It is only a side product of special grace, whether in the time of Adam, or Noah, or Moses, or Solomon, or Jonah, or Christ, or the modern church. If there is an increase of common grace in the world, that can be for only one reason. There is an increase of special grace which produced it. The decay is not decay at all. And here we come to my criticism of the words I quoted above. The postmillennialist sees the decay of culture around him and is deeply disturbed, but feels it can and will ultimately turn around for the better. Based on the postmillennial, Christendom-oriented view of common grace and its dependence on special grace, I claim that this statement is inaccurate. There is no decay of culture today. To the contrary, there is growth. Indeed, it is growth different from what we want and what we expect, but it is growth nevertheless. We don't need to wait long term to see that turn around for the better in the culture. It is here, now, around us. How can I say this? First of all, let us define what decay of culture is. Decay of culture, if we want to stick to the biblical category, should be properly defined to mean lack of or decreasing common grace in culture. That means a culture that is completely abandoning all the characteristics of a civilization and is going back to barbarism and savagery in a handbasket. A decayed culture is the culture of the African tribe, Ick, described by Colin Turnbull in his book The Mountain People in 1972. No civilization, no concept of morality or justice, no ethical principles, no idea of future or present, or work, or mutual service, or family loyalty. Just a group of people who intensely hate each other and everything they have around them, who can't build anything together because they just can't stand the very thought of working with each other for each other's benefit. A culture completely devoid of any common grace. That is a decayed culture. Our culture is not even close. While from the emotional standpoint of a modern Christian it may look as if it is disintegrating, or going down the drain economically, or being led to statism and socialism, the reality is that common grace is increasing in the United States and the West in general. And it is increasing in the world in general. Economically, we live better and more prosperous lives than ever before, even if the economic growth has slowed down. In terms of safety, we are safer than ever before. Crime rates have gone down in both the U.S. and Europe since the 1970s. Communism is dead meat, ideologically, and anyone who wants to promote it these days must use all kinds of verbal acrobatics in order to not sound hopelessly old-fashioned and irrelevant. The ideas of liberty are catching fire among the younger generation. The electronic media have slipped out of the control of the establishment gatekeepers. More and more, society is moving... More and more, society is moving in favor of biblical principles in every area of life even if there is no significant religious revival in our modern world. This has all the characteristics of an increase in common grace. The world is not going back to barbarism and savagery. Yes, certain aspects of it may be, or certain populations, or certain regions. But in general, innovation, industry, future orientation, technologies, law-abiding liberty are increasingly accepted as prevalent social norms in the culture. When there is increasing common grace, there can only be one reason. There is increasing special grace. We may not see it, but it is there. For the crumbs under the table to increase, there must be increasing loaves on the table. 
A spillover is possible only if there is increased quantity which spills over the brim. We have more converts. We have more knowledge about the Bible and what it says about righteousness and justice. We have more preaching, and it is more faithful to the Bible. We have more Christian knowledge in every area of life than before. Explicitly Christian, not baptized paganism supported by biblical verses. We have more evangelism and more missions. While there is a legitimate area for complaining about the current state of Christendom, God is still increasing his special grace to mankind, and as a result, we see increased common grace. When common grace increases, that is because special grace has increased. When special grace increases, there is no legitimate way to say that we can see a decay of culture. So stop whining. We haven't got the foggiest idea what a decay of culture is. We, I mean, we in America. The question then is, don't we see increased opposition from the unregenerate to our Christian faith, to the institutional churches? Don't we see increased opposition to family values or to any kind of Christian values in society? And isn't this opposition a sign of the decay of culture? In the past, there was no such opposition. Today there is. It is becoming harder and harder to be a Christian these days. In a previous article, A Post-Christian World and a Post-Mom Home, I explained why the challenges we face today cannot be taken to mean that the world is becoming post-Christian or that there is some kind of decay in the culture. The world is actually getting better and better because of God's increased special grace and therefore God's increased common grace. The world is much safer, much more prosperous, and much more open to Christianity today than it was 40 years ago. There are many more resources today produced by the increased special grace and the increased common grace that we can use to advance the gospel and build the Christendom. Any of us who goes back 40 or 100 years will feel miserable in a world where he has to spend much of his time struggling to survive without much time to learn and grow spiritually and intellectually. And the world was much worse back then, ethically as well. It was full of many more thieves, brigands, tyrants, etc. than there are today. But increased common grace in a culture will lead to increased resources and prosperity, and we should expect that increased resources and prosperity will eventually spill over into the hands of the enemies of God as well. The enemies of God are not able of themselves, based on their religious commitments, to produce such abundance of resources. Abundance is the specific product of spreading of the gospel around the world. But once they have access to more resources, through the common grace of God, we should expect them to use those resources against God, or since God is not reachable, against the people of God. The classic example in the Bible is the Assyrian Empire, which became mighty only because of Jonah. Jonah's message gave them special revelation and special grace. That special grace produced common grace in the following generations, which helped them build a successful empire, even if most people were unregenerate, and at the end, the successful empire fought against the people of God, who had apostatized. And at the end, God put an end to the common grace, but that's a topic for another article. Ultimately, it was Jonah's missionary success which spelled the end of the northern kingdom of Israel by putting in the hands of Nineveh the religious tools which would make them powerful enough to defeat Israel. The same thing can be said about Rome. It was the common grace crumbs, the influence of the law of Moses, which set Rome on the way to becoming a great civilization, later to building all the roads which spread the gospel throughout the inhabited world. But that empire also used these resources to strike against Christianity. In the recent history of the world, the old pagan India was content to remain under the British dominion. It was the influence of European education with its Christian worldview, 
which inspired a generation of young, educated Indians to rebel against the British. The old pagan India was never defeated so decisively as when the British gave India independence, for the very notions of liberty and independence could not have come from the pagan religions in India. And today in America, the only reason the enemies of Christianity have the resources to kick against the pricks is because of the Christendom which produced these resources in the first place. Van Til said that an unbeliever who rebels against God is like a child who has to sit in his father's lap in order to slap him on the face. In the same way, to be successful against God, unbelievers are forced to accept God's common grace and more and more imitate Christian ethics and wisdom. God must be laughing really hard at the scene, and we should be too. The increased resistance of the enemies of Christianity is only proof that we are winning the culture war. The success of the gospel will inevitably make some unbelievers accept at least some of the truths of the gospel, only to become stronger and better prepared to oppose us. Such challenge is not a sign of the decay of culture, but exactly the opposite. It is a sign that we are more successful in teaching and preaching God's special revelation to the world. The decay of culture is not decay. There is no decay. There is increased common grace, which makes unbelievers better able to rebel. And there is a church that is lagging behind in its understanding of Christ's kingdom, of his special grace, of his common grace, and of the connection between the two. More maturity brings more responsibility and more challenges. And more challenges is not decay. It's called growth. This audio version of Special Grace, Common Grace by Bojar Marinov has been produced by Reconstructionist Radio and narrated by Jason Stern. Please visit www.christendomrestored.com to read this article and many more.